Today on episode number 274 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Sarah Kavanagh describes her new book, Hive Minds. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I'm so excited to be welcoming back to the show, Sarah Rose Kavanagh. She's currently on faculty at Assumption College, where she directs the Laboratory for Cognitive and Affective Science and serves as Associate Director for Grants and Research in the Center for Teaching Excellence. Her teaching focuses on emotion, motivation, and neuroscience. Her research considers whether the strategies people choose to regulate their emotions and the degree to which they successfully accomplish this regulation can predict trajectories of psychological functioning over time. She's here today to talk about her new book, Hive Minds. Sarah, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thanks for having me. You have been busy since you were on the show last, yeah. to say the least. And yeah, life is busy. I am so excited about this particular project we're going to be talking about today, your new book, yeah. Hive Minds. And I know that it would be good for us to start just with a little bit of an overview of what the book is all about. Sure. Well, I think about the book as having kind of three layers. And so on the first layer... It's an overview of contemporary social neuroscience. So some of the most exciting, coolest research that I can find about how we are so social as a species. And that is one part that informs the title of the book, Hive Mind. And I see the hive mind as having itself a couple of different levels. One being the fact that we can enter the state of mind in which we join with our social partners, almost in a collective sort of consciousness. And that you can see in things like dancing together at weddings or marches, ecstatic group ritual. You can see it a lot in really strongly bonded groups like cults and where you just kind of join with your social others. But I think it also, to me, the hive mind means the sense that by which our sense of reality, our consensus reality, our ideas about the world, our thoughts and emotions are collectively sourced almost as much as they are individuals. And I think we don't notice, we like to think that we're all originals and individuals, and, but how much of our understanding of the world is collectively sourced. So that's one layer of the book, just an overview of contemporary social neuroscience things that have always been true. And then the second layer is how smartphones and social media have come on the scene. And I see as amplifying all of those tendencies, both the pro-social and the anti-social tendencies of our collective selves for both good and ill. And then the third layer is sort of about our current political moment. So political polarization and some of the things that are happening on both a national and a global scale. This is a different book than you have done previously. And I was trying to explain to my husband the other day, and I can't remember the name for it. Is it public press or what, what is it? What is this type of book um, called? Yeah, I mean, I'm still new to this world too, but what they seem to call it is trade. Okay. <laughs> so a trade publisher rather than an academic publisher. 
So this, I was going to say it's the real deal, but it's not like the other ones weren't the real deal. But as you right. started to imply, lots of new, new things for you to learn. Can you give us a little bit of a background of why you decided to go this route, both in terms of this kind of a book, the, the trade publisher, and then also where did this start? And maybe it's hard to decide how your ideas start, right? Because <laughs> aren't they always <laughs> sort of swarming yeah, around? No, I've always been more of a teacher than I am a researcher. I say this in the preface of the book that, you know, from the very beginning of my academic career, I sought to spend more time in the classroom than outside the classroom. And writing Spark of Learning, my first book, which was an academic book. It was an academic book, but it was for teachers. And it was for James Lang's series uh, in teaching in higher ed. And you know, he was really encouraging the writers to write in an accessible way. And I found writing that that I really enjoyed doing that rather than kind of academic piece and manuscript writing. And I found that that writing voice had a lot in common with my teaching voice. And so it felt kind of like teaching, but writing. And I enjoyed it so much that I decided to try my hand at, you know, reaching a public audience, a more popular audience and sharing some of the most exciting research going on in psychology with not just my students, but also with a wider group. (laughs) So you decided to, that you really wanted to embrace this style of writing, which, by the way, you're so good at it. So I'm so glad because I read your your book, The Spark of Learning, literally just a plane ride. And it was I was like a gripping, gripping story, it felt Aww. like. And I learned so much. So definitely that, that resonated. But talk a little bit more about I keep, I keep uh, really trying not to make B references. <laughs> I'm like, how, <laughs> no, how did these B ideas references. swarm around in your mind? Like, where, where did the where did love these it. things start to culminate? <laughs> Well, really with writing Spark of Learning, so that book was on emotions in the classroom. And some of the research that I found most compelling and most interesting was about how the instructor's passion and enthusiasm for the material could infect the students and how the classroom is really a collective social setting. And the students are influencing us and we're influencing them and all of these ideas about swarming thoughts influencing each other. And those pieces were some of my favorite parts of researching Spark. So that got me thinking about, you know, well, how does this apply more broadly? And what are other ways in the world and human experience that this is true besides just the classroom? And so that kind of led me to the hive mind ideas, which started kind of before the 2016 election and before Brexit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my original conception of the book was going to be very playful and fun and positive. (laughs) And it took a turn, you know, as events in the world unfolded. And I I hope that it's still a hopeful book, but there's a lot of dark stuff in it. One of the elements of being a hive, having this hive mind is around group polarization. Could Mm -hmm. you tell us more about what you discovered as you started to research this particular aspect? Right. So uh, group polarization refers to the fact that I encourage us to think in the book that we are one giant human hive. And I think we should have more of that. And that's one of kind of the solutions, I think, out of the mess that we're in. But we also you know, form in groups and very easily and automatically. And that seems to be part of our nature. And when we form these in groups and we start talking to people who agree with us only, we start syncing up around common ideas. And when you hear your opinions being echoed back to you, by social others and you don't hear dissenting opinions, then you tend to, we know from a lot of research, move more extreme in our opinions. So not just 
become more entrenched in our opinion, but our actual opinion becomes more extreme. And over time, you know, this can cause some problems because if you're only talking to people who agree with you, then you're not having kind of cross fertilization of ideas and you're also becoming more extreme. And so I think that, you know, this is not an original idea. <laughs> A lot of people have been talking about, you know, echo chambers and conformity and all of these things about how we're dividing into different camps. And I think that that's dangerous. When you consider that, one of the things that concerns me is, well, and I'm, I'm sure it's because mm-hmm. I'm so susceptible myself, but just this idea of hearing both sides when, when one, that doesn't seem a very thoughtful mm-hmm. way of considering these things. And, I, and someone on the show, Harold Jarkey, had talked about, just to give an example, I think this might have been the example he gave, but if it isn't, forgive me, I suspect he probably would give the same one, but, you know, climate change. So 97, 98% of scientists believe that this is a partially man-made caused issue. And so we don't go and read one story about the 97% and then one story about the <laughs> 1% to 3%. Do you understand what I'm asking? I don't know if I'm making yeah. any yep. sense. But but I get concerned because people say that we should be looking at both sides, but then it's like a disproportionate and more into like, well, I think he said that, well, let's look at some of the solutions. Let's let's just agree on Mm -hmm. this base of research that exists that is overwhelmingly, you know, scientifically based. Then then we'll see richness in the diversity of ideas on how he might address it. Right. Absolutely. And I think that both sides is is another danger of one of our hive mind tendencies and our hive mind narratives, which is these false dichotomies and that there are always two opposing sides of equal value and you have to agree with one or agree with the other. And I think that we need to make space for complexity and that we need to make space for, and I think, you know, there's a lot of people doing great work in journalism, trying to open up those ideas. My, my students this week are reading a piece and I don't have the author on hand, but if I'll add it to the recommendations. I'll send you an email called complicating the narratives. It went viral a year or two ago. It's a wonderful piece about how journalists can avoid those kinds of problems of just bringing two people when one side has a huge weight of evidence by embracing complexity in the different ways that we can kind of widen the lens that we can talk about things without introducing, okay, here are two sides. I love the phrase of wicked problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think a lot of these are wicked problems. They're tangled. And I quote Tressie McMillan Cotton in the book about smart people needing to avoid certainty and mm. and that these these wicked problems are tangled but they're really urgent and having those conversations in ways that avoid both sides systems I think is really important but I think that there are other issues that have more complexity than you know climate change clearly has a huge weight of evidence on one side but there are other issues that we could have a multitude of opinions, not just for and against or yes or no. I think there's it's really dangerous to engage in, in those kinds of false dichotomies. I'm thinking as you're describing that, how powerful then our role as teachers can be. And first we have to get ourselves out of the habit of adopting that, which yeah. <laughs> I, I can see can be a challenge, but then also asking the right kinds of questions that help get people mm-hmm. engaged in those broader discussions, you know, how do you, how do you teach a group of people to discuss these complicated narratives? I'm, I'm excited about right. the article. It sounds really good. Yeah, it's, re- it's really good. It has all different sorts of suggested solutions. 
One of the areas I know you've seen this in is in the scholarship of teaching and learning. How have you seen hive mind and these false dichotomies <laughs> entering into that space? Well, I think one really interesting thing that I've been kind of just keeping my eye on because it fascinates me is I see this group polarization happening a little bit surrounding how how teachers should best improve our craft in the classroom. And it seems like there's a cluster of ideas and people and researchers who are, I see them as very cognitively focused, you know, so they're drawing from cognitive neuroscience, they're drawing, looking at learning strategies, they're trying to kind of break down and operationalize learning and how best to help students learn, how do brains work, and then what are the techniques that we know from cognitive neuroscience and to improve those strategies. And so that's kind of one side. And then I see this other camp growing around more emotion-focused, kind of intuitive, progressive, inclusive teaching practices that kind of resists the codification of learning. And I've seen this some, I've done, you know, some keynotes and workshops to groups that are more of one or the other kind of flavor, you know, and sometimes this other camp puts scare quotes around science, you know, what is science and, and also what is learning. And I had someone say that to me in a workshop, they said, well, that they didn't think that learning was about facts and learning new skills at all. And so I think that that that's really fascinating. And both of these groups are deeply passionate about pedagogy and about learning and about helping our students. But it seems to me just like kind of sitting back and watching the Twitter conversations that people are moving out, you know, echoing each other, not talking to each other very much. And once in a while, I mean, I think the field of the scholarship of teaching and learning is so filled with lovely people. <laughs> and I think that teachers are just such a naturally kind and generous group. And maybe that's a biased opinion. I don't know. But that I don't see a lot of animosity in these in these polarizations, but just a lot of not talking to each other, I guess, more. And not accepting each other's evidence as evidence and things like that. And so James Lang and I put together a grant proposal for NSF and we decided to go a different route. But one of my ideas was to take a bunch of people from these two camps and put them in a room mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, have them debate, like, talk about, you know, what is learning? What is, you know, is there a role for empirically studying some of these things? Is it more about relationships? You know, how can we be both inclusive and use strategies that we know will help students learn? I mean, I see learning as both, you know, some of learning is about facts and I teach neuroscience and <laughs> I need my students to know what parts of the brains are and strategies and some of learning is all relational and growing as people. And I think it could be a really great synergy to cross that bridge. We had something similar like that come up at our institution. We did a workshop on culturally responsive teaching mm-hmm. and we are a Hispanic serving institution. And so it came up around you know, that, that population and what are some of the needs that are unique and, and people were really, really resisting that. And, you know, I treat all my students as if they're individuals. And so my comment was that I think that's wonderful, like that, that we, Mm -hmm. we really could weaken our teaching if we just started applying labels to people and not being careful. But yet at the same time, one of the practices within the Hispanic serving institutions is to do a DFW audit 
and see if there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic or other students of color who receive those grades. And then we can look at, and we've done past episodes with faculty talking about these, you know, changing their practices and starting to see there be less disparity. But I think that might, could possibly be another example where we could get really stuck in that either or. Mm -hmm. And how wonderful if we could both treat each student as individuals, but also be doing these checks for our own implicit biases that may exist. Yeah. Yeah. So the another hive mind tendency that you talked about is our tendency to see knowledge as fitting in these distinct and separate boxes. So what did you discover mm-hmm. in your research about this tendency? Well, I mean, they're related to each other, I think, <laughs> because I think it's again back to that dichotomies and kind of extreme opinions on things. And I think that this is just a human tendency in general that we see information and knowledge is existing in these boxes. And so what I would love to do is to really break those down. I think that there's so many different people who are studying the phenomenon of groups of people working together, trying to advance knowledge or to learn skills. And so certainly we're doing that in in higher ed, but people are also doing that in business. I have a couple of friends in industry and I'm chair of the IRB at my institution. And I can't believe the research that they get away with without any ethical approval. They're like putting sensors in people's bedrooms that eavesdrop on. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild, but they are very focused on how can teams working together, you know, develop products, which is a lot like students working on projects together in classrooms. There's psychologists studying people going on space missions and how does the team dynamics work in those settings. And there's all the work in social neuroscience and how we synchronize and share knowledge. And so I get really excited about the idea of, you know, taking information from all these different places to inform our work of the classroom. And I was lucky enough, Pod invited, I proposed a session and they invited me to do it as the anchor session. So any people attending that conference, stay till Sunday, (laughs) because we're going to talk about honeybees and outer space missions and (laughs) business and how we can take knowledge from all of these other areas and bring it into the classroom. We have just a couple minutes left before we go over to the recommendations segment. And since mm-hmm. you brought up honeybees and I've been watching, <laughs> watching on Twitter, you, you're just so fun to follow on Twitter. So if you could just oh, share a few random things that we may not know about honeybees that, you know, that, uh, you, that you uncovered, yeah. I think that would be a fun way to transition us over to the recommendations. <laughs> well, in, in the first chapter of the book, I interview a beekeeper. So I went out to Western Mass and I was hoping he'd let me play with the bees, but his research assistant didn't show up. And so I didn't get to play with the bees. But you know, he told me lots of interesting things about his bees. One of the things he said that I loved was that the healthiest hives are the most diverse, in his opinion, that he sees bees as, I don't know how scientific this part is. <laughs> He's not a, a biologist. He's a beekeeper, but as having little personalities and that some are more aggressive, some are more communal. And he sees certain hives as having those personalities. Like there are certain hives, he says, you know, if they're low on honey, you don't want to go anywhere near them because <laughs> they'll, uh, it'll, it'll be a bad news. But he saw the hives that thrived the most, he thought were the ones that were most diverse, which I loved that quote. And then how much they also operate using pheromones and having a clear leader in their queen releasing this hormone that that communicated that everything was all well in the hive and so it, I see kind of that as the instructor <laughs> you know say all is well you know 
being kind of the master of the ship. Hmm. It's funny because I do read Twitter later at night than I should. <laughs> so did I, did I also see something from you the other night about a spider that's a big, huge spider and it keeps a little tiny, was it a frog or? What? Yeah, I, I don't know if this is true. So my joke on oh, Twitter okay. was that I, I literally had spent the day talking to my intro psych classes about media literacy and being <laughs> sure to fact check everything. And then someone put on Facebook, Book, this thing about spiders keeping teeny tiny frogs as pets to, to kill bugs that are too small for them to see. So the fact that these little frogs are actually cats, spider cats. Oh <laughs> and I said, gosh. I don't care. I don't care if it's true. I'm just going to believe it. Just gonna believe it. <laughs> and I think that en- entered into my dream in some way, but. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I gave you spider dreams. Yeah, I couldn't be. I, I don't remember having my sleep disrupted, but it's so funny. I just that image really stays with me. Now I'm going to be so curious if it ends up being true. So yeah, I, I should investigate. <laughs> we, well, you know, I, I'm the one who brought it up without <laughs> untested, <laughs> but I'd like to believe it's true. It would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is the point in the show where we each get to give recommendations. And I have a couple of them. The first one is from Maria Anderson. Her Twitter handle is busyness girl, and she's got a wonderful blog. And she recently put out some basic HTML tips for when your learning management system is making you nuts. And I think sometimes people think that that's a really inaccessible, like, oh, I couldn't learn that. I'm not a programmer. And I think her article is a really nice way to start small and just learn a few things that could go a long way and not make it as intimidating. She's so good about breaking things down. So that's my first recommendation. Yeah. And then the second one is an article from Fast Company and it's called I Create Videos for a Living. These tools make it easy and affordable. And it's just a wonderful way of looking at sound for video and looking at screens and clutter. And you know, how do you how do you make higher quality video from an expert? But it really makes it accessible and there's a lot of different links to resources. So if you are working on improving your creating video game, this would be a great, great place to start. So I've got those two recommendations. And now I get to pass it over to you for yours, Sarah. Great. So I think the first would be that complicating the narratives article Mm -hmm. uh, that I will send you. And I think that that's both great from a teaching perspective, anyone who wants students to start thinking about how can we have better debates in the classroom? How can we think past polarization, but also is a wonderful set of solutions to some of these you know, dark sides of the hive mind. And then my second is I recently had a speaking engagement at East Tennessee State University that was lovely, the folks there, and their planning team all read the book, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. And it's interesting because it's not a teaching book. It's a book about gathering, about how to throw a party or a conference or a work meeting and how to gather better. And so I read it on the plane on the ride over and I just loved the principles. And, you know, it's filled with, turned it into a blog post. In fact, I loved it so much. Um, you know, tips like about openings and how you shouldn't start with logistics, uh, any gathering, you should start with purpose and you should start with um, meaning and just ways to gather more meaningfully and connect more meaningfully. And I think it's full of rich recommendations, both for the classroom and just for life. Dave, my husband had her on his podcast. And so she, he read the book too. And he said that there was a lot in terms of, because we do some event planning in my departments as well, but also just for teaching, you know, Mm -hmm. starting with that purpose, some really good reminders. And sometimes I think for me, gatherings seem to be a little bit more 
superficial than I would prefer. And so if we really do start with that purpose and the deeper ways we want to engage, we can really design great experiences. I, I, I'm reluctant to say I haven't read it yet, but you're making me want to read it even more for sure. (laughs) It's hard to keep up with all these great books we come across. Oh, it is. Well, Sarah, it's been so wonderful to get to talk to you again. I'm just so excited about your work. I, I enjoy everything I've ever gotten my hands on that you've written. And I love your, the way that you just resonate so much with our lives and make it accessible for us to understand this this stuff, including hive minds. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much to Sarah Kavanaugh for coming back on today's teaching in higher ed. It was great to learn more about hive minds. And of course, we should all go out and purchase it and get some of these ideas into our minds to improve our teaching and just lives in general. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of teaching in higher ed. If you'd like to go to the show notes, you can always get there by going to teaching in higher ed dot com slash 274. You also have an option to subscribe to them to come into your inbox, along with an article about teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at teaching in higher dot com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.